This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Um, our first speaker is Tim, who's going to be speaking to us about the laws to norms, how privacy can influence design. Please welcome Tim. Okay, I'm hoping you can all hear me. Uh, my name is Tim, I'm from the University of Melbourne, but I also work in, in as a consultant around public health and privacy, and I am manager not-for-profit. So I have a few different hats. I want to start today just by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands upon which I work and live on, um, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, but also the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations, which we are here today upon. So before I get into my talk, because as an academic, all we do as academics is reference other people, but this isn't an academic conference, but I do want to start by acknowledging some people who have inspired what I'm going to talk about today. Um, so if you want to know more about this, these are the people I'd recommend going and reading, because I think they're really at the forefront of how we need to conceptualize privacy. And what I'm going to introduce to you today is, I guess, a new way of thinking about privacy. Now, the talk, the title of my talk, I gave it that title so that if my bosses looked at it, they wouldn't question it. But my talk actually has another title, which I'm going to share with all of you because we're all friends. Nothing I say in this room will leave this room. It will just be on Twitter forever. The actual title of my talk is Sex, Drugs and Privacy. And you'll start to realise why that's the title of my talk very soon. But on a completely unrelated topic, completely unrelated, we're going to start with a little bit of a pop quiz. And I need you to participate, and I'm just going to assume, even if you don't participate, I'm just going to assume that you're participating. So either way, you lose. So I'm going to start with some simple questions. Who's interested in working out how they can design better for privacy? Raise your hand. Cool, simple one. Who wishes that the lolly banana flavour was the actual flavour of bananas? Awesome, okay, cool. We've got some ground rules now, you're participating. Okay, we're going to get a little bit more personal now. Who here has had consensual, consensual sex with another adult before? <laughs> cool. Okay, you put your hand down really quickly though. <laughs> I've any cameras out. Who here has ever um, taken illicit substances or illegal drugs before? Okay, cool, cool. Um, who here values their own privacy? Okay, one more big one, or two more big ones actually. Who here values other people's privacy? Okay, and who here was expecting to be asked about sex and drugs at this conference? Is anyone? One person, okay. <laughs> are you in the right place? So some of you, I think, are liars. Because some of you answered those questions. You, you engaged, but then you said that you valued other people's privacy. Now, by answering the question about whether or not you'd had consensual sex before, you just outed all the virgins in the room. Anyone who didn't put their hand up. Now, they might not be virgins. There might be other reasons why they haven't had consensual sex. But as the person who's owning this space, I get to define the variables. By saying that you hadn't taken or illicit drugs, or that you had, you'd, you'd either outed yourself as taking illicit drugs, or you'd outed people who hadn't. So if this was like the cool spot at high school where everyone said, I take drugs because I'm cool, you've just kind of outed all of those. Now, what, what this tells us, though, is that, and this is a big theme in my talk, is that privacy is not, a, is not just as important as individuals in our digital age, but it's important as groups. 
And what you say and do doesn't just have an impact on you and your privacy, it has an impact on the privacy of those around you. Throughout my talk, I come from a health background, so I'm going to use a lot of examples from the My Health Record because that's what a lot of my research is on. And I just want to kind of note for those who, who don't know what this is, the My Health Record is a national electronic health record which contains a summary of people's health information that their general practitioners upload to it for other clinicians to access. So just I will use some examples from that, but I'll try and make this as general as possible. Now, why do we care about privacy? Why do we care about privacy? We care about privacy here in this space mostly because of this term, privacy by design. And privacy by design is, is this kind of big monolithic concept at the moment, which is being taken up more and more, even in the GDPR space, the general data protection regulation in Australian privacy regulation, that we need to actually not just react to privacy invasions, but we actually need to prepare for them and design privacy into our technologies. Now, when we actually say privacy by design, how it's been practically used mostly is in privacy engineering, and that's how it's been actioned in the GDPR, it's how it's been actioned in, in most spaces that we, we engineer privacy into technology. And what I want to get us to think about, though, is what does it actually mean to do privacy by design in terms of what we think of design? And what I would argue, and hopefully I can convince you this in my talk, is that privacy by design for us is not about doing privacy, it's about questioning privacy. It's about being critical, and you will see a lot of the themes I talk about today have been reflected in some of our talks on many topics throughout the last day and a bit. That what we have as designers, our power, is to be critical and to question. And then other people might do the doing. So that's why we care about privacy. Why does society care about privacy now? We care about privacy now because we live in an information age where information is the commodity, the capital that we need to get through the world. In my research, I look at health services and most health services, I look at, well, I look at health and social care services, most of these services you need to consent to give information to get a service. I've spoken to homelessness services who say that if people don't consent to get information, they've still got to provide a service but they have to tell the people that they might not get the house that they need or the, the support that they need. So information is an essential commodity for us to interact in the world. And it provides us benefits, but also it, it, it provides us a bit of like creepiness sometimes. And that's really where the current tension, I think, comes from. Historically, though, privacy was all about having protection or space away from governments, that the state couldn't intervene in your space. And I'll talk a bit more about this in a second. But what I want you to think about, though, is if that's how we came from privacy, that privacy started as protection from the state, what does it mean now when a lot of our privacy thoughts and conversations are more about protection from private entities? So let's keep on this theme about the state. Privacy started as a, as a concept about an individual right, that we had a right to define ourselves. We had a right to be let alone. Um, that was where it started. And a lot of this was about control, that we should have control over what information was out there about us and who had access to it. That we should be able to control in the private sphere what people knew about us. And it really hinged on this dichotomy of private and public, that in our private spaces we had control, that there was something about us that we had control over, but then in the public space we didn't. 
And what I would say though is that this is really hard, this is really hard to understand in today's age where we spend a lot more time in the public. The public and the private are collapsing with the internet and with technology. You're at home, you're on social media, are you in public or private? And we have much more ways to collect and use the information in the public sphere. 50 or 60 years ago, public information was actually really hard to use. If your address was in a phone book somewhere, it didn't mean a lot. But now that it can be aggregated and linked to other data, there's much more implications for that. Now, this individual conception of privacy is very much um, the focus of the GDPR still. The GDPR is very progressive, but it still sits in this very much individual conceptualization of privacy. And the GDPR has seven principles. You can read those if you want. I think the one which probably sits more closely to what we're probably thinking about and what we're doing at the moment is principle number one. And principle number one, you've probably all experienced it in this scenario. Do you accept cookies? Do you want to change your privacy settings? And I just, I've just been traveling across Europe, so I was making this slide. So you've got a nice slide in the middle there from the Louvre. I went to the Louvre and I was on the, on the website and I thought, oh, screenshot, this is going to be perfect for my presentation. But the issue with the individual conception of privacy is that it relies on this idea that we have choice. And I would argue that we don't have a lot of choice. And we don't have a lot of choice and we also don't have a lot of information. I've never read a terms and conditions form and I'm a privacy researcher, but I don't have time. I don't understand half of an invite. I don't have a law degree. And what this really hinges on though is the concept of power. And the individual conceptualization of privacy doesn't realize this. And I think the person who really solidifies this for me is um, a researcher and author called Priscilla Regan. And what she says is that the idea that we as individuals have enough power to stand up against great organizations and states is laughable. We can all think about situations, and I think the US provides many great examples, where the state or organizations have said, look, yeah, you have an individual right of privacy, but there's some other social good that we need to balance that with. If that's fighting terrorism or public health, your individual right doesn't stack up to that social need. But what Priscilla Regan says is that, well, we actually need to, we, if we want privacy to work for us, we need to consider the social value of privacy. And another way to think about this um, is, is group privacy, which a philosopher, Luciano Floretti from Oxford, talks about that most of the technologies we're concerned about today don't really care about ours as individuals, they care about ours as groups, and they make inferences about ours as groups. I think this is really important to consider that a lot of us in our design and a lot of us in our work and a lot of our privacy discussions, and even yesterday, a lot of the things were about individual rights, but privacy has to be a social good if it's to have power. Now, one of the practical ways of using privacy, which I'm very passionate about when I want to talk to you about and use as a bit of a framework to move forward, is a theory called contextual integrity by this person called Helen Nissenbaum from, from New York University. And um, I'd recommend getting this book. It's a great read. It's very interesting. And what contextual integrity says is that privacy isn't about limitation or control. It's about what's appropriate to a specific context. 
I really love this because one, one thing that really frustrates me when I'm in healthcare is that we have these little rules specifically for healthcare, but it's a very it's a specific type of healthcare. It's if, if you're in a hospital, if you're in a doctor, when really healthcare can be many things. Now, I should say I'm a bit biased because um, I actually spent the last couple of weeks in, um, just before I was in Europe in California with all the privacy contextual integrity researchers. So I'm really, you know, I've drunk for Kool-Aid, I'm really a part of this group. So everything I say, just, just remember that, you know, there are negatives to this theory, which I will draw out, but you know, I've, I've bought in. <laughs> so contextual integrity says that privacy is the appropriate flow of information for a specific context. And when new technologies come in that breach that appropriate flow, that's what creeps us out. That a lot of things that make people feel a bit ooh, creepy about technology is not because it broke some legal conceptualization of privacy, it just it was not what they expected. And what is appropriate is based off context-specific norms. So in this room, there's probably not a norm to talk about sex and drugs. So when I brought that up, you were probably like, ooh, what? He wants me to talk about... You weren't expecting it. And it probably made you be like, oh. But in saying that, you know, we're a pretty rowdy bunch, so maybe you did expect it. And we can conceptualise norms, according to this theory, by five parameters, or five dimensions. By the actors, the subject of the data, the sender and the receiver, by the information type, and by the transmission principle. And transmission principles are the constraints on information flow. So that might be consent, it might be um, reciprocation, it might be by law. And what Hellenismbaum says is that you need to identify all of these parameters. And most privacy, other privacy theories don't. They either hinge on the transmission principle. If it's by consent, it's fine. But you know, for those of us, if your information, depending on who your information is shared to, that really hinges on whether or not it's something we expect. So let me give you an example of CTV cameras. So the, the cameras out on the street, which kind of surveillance state. Why are they a bit creepy? And when they first got introduced, why did they creep people out? Isn't it just the same as some other random person seeing you in the street? What, what's different? And what's different is a few things. One is that you don't know who's on the other end of that camera. So the receiver of your data has changed, but also the transmission principle. But when you see me out in the street, if you take a photo of me walking around because you're like, oh, this guy's got a cool watch on, I'm going to take a photo of that watch. I can see you. I, I, could take a, I could take a photo of you, but CCTV, you, you can't. There's no reciprocation there. So contextual integrity has a really great descriptive way of understanding why certain technologies challenge our expectations and norms. And then it goes further to say, well, nearly all technology is going to disrupt our norms somewhat. So how can we evaluate that technology to say, is it still justified? Does it really breach our privacy? And what the theory says is that we need to consider a few different things. And as I say these few different things, I want you to really think about how you might define these if I was giving you the task to evaluate a technology and think about the idea of power. So what it says, when I get to the right side, is that you need to evaluate whether the technology has an impact on key interests and whose interests. So in healthcare, does it have an impact on the patient's interests or the doctor's interests? Does it uphold or does it value certain political or moral interests? So the My Health Record, for example, says, not does, but says that it's going to give patients more control over their data. Is that a good thing? Is that something we're aiming for in the context of healthcare? 
And then you've got to think about, does it uphold the values and ends of the context? So if healthcare, if its goal is to make people healthier, does the My Health record make people healthier? Now, what I've argued in my research is that the My Health record does breach contextual integrity on the face of it. Because what it does is in normal healthcare scenarios, if you go see your doctor, you go see your doctor, I'm sick, he says, well, I'm going to, or he or she says, I'm going to send you on to another doctor. And I'm going to send them some information. And I'm going to curate that information for the other doctor. I'm going to tell you who that doctor is. You'll go on your merry way. We know who's receiving the information. The information is curated for them. The My Health Record, though, you get all this information dumped into the cloud, which someone in a Senate inquiry called a glorified Dropbox. And you don't really know who's going to receive it and is it going to be curated for them. So on the face of it, it does breach our norms around information sharing in healthcare. But if it makes us healthier, if it does give patients more control, maybe it's justified. And at the moment, I don't think we have the data to say if that's the case. But that's how we would use contextual integrity. We would ask, does it breach the current norms? And is it justified either by upholding key interests? Does it have a moral political argument? Or does it serve the values and ends of the context? And you can probably think about your own context. I, obviously, I'm in healthcare, but some of you are probably in many different contexts. Another great one to think about is education, if you work in the education space. There's lots of new technologies being used in schools. Are they breaching people's um, expected privacy norms? Now, I want to take this theory, and I want to start to think about how that might work for us as designers and our questioning that I spoke about earlier, not doing that questioning. So the first question I want you to think about is, the power of context. So this is something I'm really passionate about because context is one of those things that is really hard to define. My background's in community development and it's kind of like community. What is a community? What is a context? And this is really important because what you define as your context is then gonna have an implication on who you actually do everything with in your design. So if you do user-centered or participatory design and you go talk to people, what you define as your context defines who you're gonna talk to. So in healthcare, if you define healthcare as hospitals and primary healthcare, you might only go talk to doctors in a hospital and doctors in a GP's office and maybe the patients who go there. But for some people, healthcare can be going to a disability support worker, accessing a housing and homelessness service. So suddenly you're missing out the actual experience that people have. And one question I'm always asking is, you know, what are the different types of context we may have? So I thought of a few here. So I've got context as symbolized and context is symbolized is the things out there in the world that give meaning to a space, like a hospital, a lab coat, the plus sign that you have at the Red Cross or the snake around the serpent symbol-y thing that says that something's medical. Context is experienced, how we experience our context. When you go out into the world and you're in healthcare, what does that actually mean to you? Context is framed, and I think this is one which is really important I want you to take note of, that most of the times in privacy and in many things, we frame context through the technology. The technology primes us. So if we think about the My Health Record, and most people, myself included, who have spoken about the My Health Record, we enter the context through the technology, and suddenly we say the, the context is hospitals and doctors because that's what the My Health Record was designed for, or that was the kind of brief that we started with. Context is designed. So you as designers, when you're designing a technology, you've got an idea of context. You've got an idea of what you're designing for. It might not actually be that, but that's how you've come to a, a conceptualization of what is healthcare, what is education, and you're using that when you design something. 
And then also, when we implement a technology, people use it in weird and wonderful ways. They make new connections with it. So we create a whole new context when that technology is implemented. And what I think is this all kind of boils down to is context is all about connections and disconnections. It's the connections we create or have and the disconnections, the things we're not connected to. And depending on how you define context will depend on what connections you're making between different entities and what disconnections. And bringing this back to privacy, that's going to come back to what we might expect in a certain context depending on how we define it. And what I think is probably most fascinating for me is this idea of context collision or context collapse. And this is one of the things where I think we, we really do see the creepiness sometimes or the kind of uh, social angst around privacy when different contexts collapse together and the norms seep into one another and become a bit of a mess. So the best way to think of this is when your mum adds you on Facebook. And suddenly, all those pictures you were posting of a great night out, you're like, oh, okay, I've got to curate my feed a bit now. I've got to put on some privacy controls. Because your context of your friends and your social relations with your friends and your context of your family have suddenly collided and all the norms you had with your friends, your information norms, and the norms you have with your mum, unless you have a great relationship with your mum, I have a great relationship with my mum, she hears everything, whether or not she wants to or not, but they collide. And I think this is actually really important for us as designers, and I want to tell you why. So when we design things, I, I kind of think of design as stemming from a hierarchy. We have a value set, and we might not always be aware of this value set, it might be that you know, we want to make people better with our technology. We want to fix this, improve this. And then we say, well, how do we do that? And we create norms. We do that by making sure that we share the information with the psychiatrist as quickly as possible with consent from the patient, if that's on my health record. And then we do our design requirements and our technical specifications. And at each level of these, there's more opportunities. So when you set a value, I want to make people healthier, you could do that with many different norms, many different ways of doing that. And then you could design that in many different ways and have as many technical specifications as you want. And in my research, I just kind of copy and pasted this slides from one of my thesis pages, so I don't know how it will look. But what I've said is that your technology, you've designed in norms. You've designed in how you think that technology should be used and how you think information should flow. That's what you've done. And you've done that maybe by talking to lots of different people and bringing lots of different stakeholders together and coming to some sort of view. And that's come about from a context of design. So you've said, okay, healthcare means this, I'm going to talk to these people, I'm going to make these norms. And these are probably going to be different from the actual context. And that's just the sad truth. We can't always collect all the data, we can't always capture everyone experience, everyone's experiences. And there's going to be some misalignment. So we're going to go through a situation of appropriation where we're going to get some emergent norms. Now, this part over here, what this is, this is context collision. The context that you've defined as healthcare, as business, as education, is going to collide with the actual experience that people are having, and then they're going to create new norms from your technology. And the big question I have in my research and my thinking and my practice is, you know, who really gets to define context and norms? And I think this is really important when we're especially if we're imposing technology on people, if you're working in a space where people don't have a choice to use your technology, this is really important. Are we defining the context 
is it the, so in healthcare, is it the doctor defining the context? Are they defining the norms? Are they the people we're privileging? And how, how do we get to this point where we have norms being defined? Because what contextual integrity as a theory says is it says out here in the world, we have all these norms that we don't talk about sex and drugs at academic or industry conferences until after maybe 5 p.m. So we have all these norms. How did they come about? Who got to define them? And when we implement a technology and people are creating new norms to make that technology work for them and their values, who gets to define that? So a great example is the National Health Service in the UK. They implemented something like the My Health Record several years ago. And part of the designed in norm was that doctors would ask for consent before opening the record. Most doctors didn't do that. They opened the record first because they wanted to get the information to be more efficient. And that just became a bit of a norm. So who, who, why did doctors get to decide that? And putting on my sociologist hat, what I think really drives this is, is power, but also capital. And capital, we think about capital as an economic concept, but Pierre Bordeaux, who's a sociologist from France, he talks about this idea of cultural capital. That we don't just have economic capital, but in different contexts, we have different types of capital specific to that context. So in healthcare, healthcare cultural capital might be knowledge about health. It might be understanding all the different diagnoses. It might be having a lab coat, maybe, and being able to like pull off a lab coat. It might be many things. And those with cultural capital can better define the context and the norms. And what he calls this is he calls it it's a feel for the game. But if you have this cultural capital, you understand the rules. You understand how healthcare works. When you're a patient, and remember that patient is a relational term. You become a patient in relation to a doctor. You're not just a patient because you're sick. You don't have a feel for the game. Because you just turn up and you're like, what's happening? I feel unwell. So you don't get that opportunity to define those norms, to define that context. And that's an issue. Because it's the patient, or it's the, it's the news, it's the data subject, whatever you want to call it, who's probably going to face the privacy harms. So what's the solution to all of this? We've talked about a lot of things. We've gone on a bit of a journey. You thought we were probably just going to talk about the GDPR for like 45 minutes. We weren't. We're talking about norms and why people expect, because I think that's really important. People. So I think about healthcare again, if people have their expectations, if they get creeped out by technology, they might just stop turning up to healthcare, or they might not give the information we need to provide them the best healthcare possible. That's a problem. So what's the solution? I think the solution is participation, but not just any participation. And I'm going to kind of talk about what I mean by participation. How great is this movie, by the way? How great is this movie? Um, right now, I just want to go talk about Disney's new streaming service and have a bit of a rant. I'm not going to. We'll talk about that in lunchtime. But what do we mean by participation? Well, this is one way of thinking about participation. Participation is a transformative concept. It is a way of life, a way of seeing the world and a way of being in the world. This is from Ledwith and Springer. And I really, really like this. It's not just when we bring people and we talk to them. But what I think is... It, it, is more challenging, and I work in the participatory design space. If you don't, I'm sorry if any of this goes over your head, but in general, you know, we, we want to bring people in, work with them in our design. But what I think is, is challenging is, you know, norms are 
institutionalized. You, you don't know that something's a norm until you break it. You don't know that someone has power over you until something goes wrong. You don't know that you don't have capital, really. You don't know that these power, you're just kind of living your life. So Paola Freire says that we actually need to help people or work with people is probably a better way to put it, to actually think about, and even ask ourselves, we need to think about these broader concepts of power and capital and control. And what he says is, you know, the oppressed, having internalized the image of the oppressor and adopted his guidelines, are fearful of freedom. So what I'm thinking in my design work, in my participatory design, is how do we actually start to question these power structures? How do we actually start to question who's defining the context, who's defining the norms, before things go to crap, before we introduce a technology which we've designed around the GDPR, it's amazing, it's gonna protect people's privacy, it's got data minimization, and then people get a bit creeped out by it. They're like, actually, this doesn't feel right. They probably can't put their finger on it. Why? You know, you've talked to the doctors, you've talked to the patients, and I think part of it is actually questioning, well, you know, you, you can't have every single norm, you can't have every single information flow in a technology, so you've had to come to some decision. How did you get there? Who got to control that? And I think the big thing for me is disruption. And I think the idea of cultural capital gives us a way to disrupt, which is really practical. So I'm going to go back to the My Health Record to give you an example, what I mean by this. So the My Health Record allows patients to input their own information. But no one else can see it, only the patient. So you can go and put as much as you want on that My Health Record. No doctor will ever see it. You can write reams and reams. What if we allow doctors to see it? There's legal arguments about, well, does then that make them liable? Yeah, but what if doctors could see your information? Would it then actually change the cultural capital? Would it then say, well, patient information is legitimate? And therefore, would then patients, people, citizens, then be able to start to define the information norms about how they want their data used? Because suddenly there's a legitimacy to them being there, that their data their knowledge of health is just as equal as the doctor's knowledge of health. Or the other way, could technology actually help upskill its users to have more cultural capital? Could the My Health Record take the data that the doctors put in and translate it to more simple information or more lay person's information so that the patient can actually understand it and participate in conversations around the information and how it's used? Could that be a way to help Patients and doctors work together to create these norms rather than letting those in power, those of most cultural capital, define the norms themselves. For me, this is, this is something that I, uh, like, it, it's challenging because I'm not, I'm not a patient, I'm not a doctor, and I am talking with patients and doctors, but it's, it's really hard to think about, well, would people want to rise up and take control of their data? And some of the questions I, I would ask you to think about, I'm asking myself to think about, is what role do we as designers play in actually facilitating some of this push? So, we started with the individual. Individual conceptualizations of privacy, where you have an individual right to control your data. And hopefully I've convinced you that we need to move beyond that. It's important, and I think that a lot of what we do has to sit alongside the law, 
because the law is important. But if we really want people to not get creeped out by the things we design, we can't just take the GDPR and apply it to our design and then give it to the engineers and say, fix it, <laughs> make this align with GDPR. We need to think about what do people expect? What do people, what are the norms? And what I'm moving towards in my work is this idea, and the first speaker yesterday articulated it really well. Who do we actually leave this up to? Do we leave this up to the state? Do we leave this up to like some independent uh, governance board? For me, I do think it's about governance. We need to think about ways to actually work with our users to give them power, redistributive power, to actually set up some of these norms. And also to actually probably think about how we actually work, give our users power in the appropriation of technology. So we've designed the technology, we plop it in, our funding runs out, we run away. They're appropriating it. How do those norms emerge in appropriation when we're not there to support that redistribution of capital, cultural capital? So I think governance is really important. And I think the idea of knowledge governance. What rules and roles are we setting up so that people can govern their knowledge, can establish norms around technology that actually meet their expectations and meet their values and can actually negotiate these different values? And I guess I want to finish on this idea of community, community knowledge governance. How can we as designers design things because that's what they are, things, but actually create a space for our users to start to build mechanisms for community knowledge governance. And for me in the My Health Record, I think it's, it's actually having patients have data that they can contribute to. And I think that that's only one step. I think there's more. And this, you know, I'm not an engineer either. I'm a sociologist. I kind of fit in the middle of nowhere. But I think it's actually talking to our tech friends and saying, you know, what can we actually do with the technology to give people more control? And I guess what I want to leave you with is that no matter if you leave here and you're like, oh, it sounds all too hard. Norms, like people will just adapt. I want you to really think of privacy as something that you can tangibly interact with, something you, you can grip hold of. You can actually talk to people and say, what do you expect your data to be used for. If that's all you take away from this, I think that's a question you can ask in every single user focus group, user interview, whatever you do, you can ask people, what do you expect with your data? If I introduce this, how would you expect it to be used? That's just a simple thing you can do to start to understand, is the information flow, is the designed in norms of your product or service actually going to creep people out? Super simple. And then, if you, if you really want to take on a challenge, you can start to be critical about, well, how does my technology define context? What designed in norms? Who gets to decide them? How can I spread cultural capital so other people can have control of those norms? Last but not least, please come and chat to me afterwards. I'm actually, even though I get up here and I walk around a lot, I'm actually very introverted. So come up and chat to me or tweet me. And one last thing before I jump up, walk off this stage nicely, it is We're at Purple Day, so I want to acknowledge that and acknowledge all our LGBTIQ plus friends and community that I'm a part of in the room and say, I hope you're having a great time. Please come and chat. And thank you all, so all so much for coming to my talk. <laughs>